0: fellow kids and welcome to episode 54 of hello fellow kids
1: this is the podcast where we read you a book report yes we usually
0: forget to explain what the 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 podcast is about because i just assume that if there's anybody listening to this surely this isn't their first episode but then i realized how few times we've actually said what the podcast is about like it's kind of self-explanatory but we should probably mention it from time to time
1: yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I've li- I've been listening to so many podcasts myself, and they always say up at top what you're in for, and like yeah. we never do. We just we're always just like you know why we're here. <laughs> why would this be your first episode? Shouldn't you scroll down to episode one? But some people don't do that.
0: Yeah, to be honest though, y'all should just start at episode three. That's uh that's doll bones. That's that's some yeah. good stuff.
1: Yeah, episode one wasn't even really supposed to be episode one.
0: No, it's just the real episode one made us so angry.
1: <laughs> I was promised that this was just a practice run, and then it ended up being the episode, and I was like, oh, it's not even a really good episode. So, um, yeah, it doesn't get good until, like, Doll Bones. And then we have, like, random bits of, like, good I shouldn't say that about our podcast. Every episode is a masterpiece. <laughs> My personal favorite is the unicorn episode. The yeah. Bruce Covel, um unicorn episode. We did not like the book, but it wasn't like we hated it so much we were angry. It was just more like, I don't know, it, it was like enough that it was fun. Yeah.
0: And there were still like a couple of decent stories. Like Bruce Covel's story in it was good. Yeah. Like,
1: I think to the point where they probably shouldn't have opened with that one. (laughs) Because everything else was such a disappointment after that. But uh, anyway, uh, this isn't, like, recommending episodes podcast. This is the Hello Fellow Kids podcast where we essentially do read you a book report. We we read the – I guess it's middle grade books. I know we say, like, young adult and teen, but it's really – just middle grade. Yeah. That we read and um have a discussion, but we also give you a brief synopsis so you guys at least have some context for what we're talking about.
0: Yep, if you, if you listen to the episode, you'll you'll have the whole plot, but you'll there'll still be a lot of the the, the little bits that you only get from reading that I uh, you can still uh, experience on your own if you choose to read it. So, yeah. Speaking of which, think,
1: like, Nine times out of ten, you should.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe eight out out of ten. But yeah, most of them. (laughs) Most of them are (laughs) worth the time in some capacity.
1: Our book this week is a Mara pick. And uh, what episode's immediately before this? Is is it Long Lankin?
0: Uh, No, immediately before this was uh, Empty Smiles, which a little peek behind the curtain. uh, Mm -hmm. We're recording this ahead of time because empty smiles hasn't been published yet and we're gonna try and get like a really quick turnaround on that but we wanted to make sure we had something in the books for after that so uh but yes we had, in terms of recording we had just talked about Long Lincoln and um it, 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 it's very funny how we ended up picking these two books
1: yeah you you really insisted on long length to the point that you paid for it for me, and like gave it to me, and I was like, "I don't remember agreeing to this, and you swore up and down that we had some long conversation where we both thought it was a great idea, which I do not remember and then i this was another random pick. I got this in the same book batch that I got Amari and the night brothers, so um, yeah, this was amara pick, and I think it's funny that this yeah. We were essentially drawn to the same story, but it's so funny because I always make this thing where I say like, I don't, I don't read male authors anymore. I don't like male authors, but the one you picked was a female author. I hated it. This is the male author and I picked it and I thought it was pretty decent.
0: Yeah, I think that, um,
1: I would have liked it more if we hadn't read long Lankin first because I was (laughs) like, I feel like we're treading a lot of the same territory here.
0: Yeah, see, if you bought this at the same time as Amari, you should have added more things to your cart, because you were
1: on a roll. I don't know. My taste can't always be trusted, but...
0: Yeah, it's not like either of us have, like, perfect records.
1: I do remember I was the one who, like, championed for small spaces, but you weren't dragging your feet on that either, so... Yeah. And Doll Bones was mine, so... I think... And that won that bracket... I think what I need to do
0: is I need to just get rid of all of the middle grade books that I own and still haven't read yet, because the reason why we did Long Lankin was because I had owned it for a bunch of years and hadn't read it. And then I flipped through and I noticed that it was like every chapter was dated for August. I was like, oh, that's a great August episode. And then that wasn't like a home run. And then the other one that I had owned for a while because it looked good when I was in that age bracket was tunnels. So I just need to not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, like, have me look through your back catalog and tell you <laughs> yes or no. Well, anyway. So this one today is, like, the good Long Lincoln, where we don't demonize someone with a disability. Isn't that nice? Because the villain of Long Lankin had um leprosy right but we still have some disability rep in this but it's not the villain which is nice
0: yeah for sure yeah this was really interesting because you know how we talk about how like a big part of our feelings of a book is like whether or not they stick the landing and so you're kind of like i can feel that it's going to be around this score but i could see it you know i could see it if it stumbles like dropping down a star or something like that at the end yeah you know yeah this book is really interesting because when it started i was like all right yeah this is solid and then like as i was reading i it's it's like in my head i had the like the the like the stars and i just was as i was reading i was watching the stars just like come on and like fill up and i was like i'm watching it get better as i keep reading it this is so crazy <laughs> like i it it's been a while since i've had one where as it keeps going i was like okay, no, 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 this is re- this is good. And then I kept going, I'm like, this is really, there's a lot of really good stuff here. This is so
1: cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like an AI found out about our interests and then wrote a book for us. Is <laughs> 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 what this feels like. <laughs> it's like, oh, these are the things that are going to annoy Mara, so we're not going to have them in there. And... The things that annoy Josh aren't really going to be present here either. And you're just like, okay, cool. Thank you for not annoying me. <laughs> this book brought us, I think, my new favorite character on the podcast, uh oh. Hester Kettle, <laughs> the little storyteller. Yeah. I was just yeah. like, this is my new favorite character. This <laughs> is it. I do think I'd like to see this as like a 1980s uh cartoon in the style of like the Black Cauldron. Okay. Is how I would want this to be illustrated. That's just how I kept picturing Hester Kettle.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking of this as more of like a like a stop motion. <laughs> yeah, like a is it Henry Selleck that did Nightmare? Is that was that. Uh, the
1: yes, one? and and Coraline.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like a like a a, a Studio Selleck sort of production for this.
1: Okay, so we'll do the '80s cartoon first, and then like they're like oh. Let's remake it, but stop motion. So then there's, like, two versions of the film, and every film bro online has a favorite, and they're very adamant about it.
0: <laughs> the the 80s cartoon one, like, leans a bit more into, like, the paranormal, whereas, like, the stop motion one, they try to, like, explain some of it away with, like, some some more grounded elements because, like, you know, the the modern audience wants you know, wants realism and stuff, and then there's a whole debate about whether or not that improved the story and its themes, and then you just need to close down the internet for the evening.
1: Well, now I kind of want to change my answer, because I kind of like the idea... I do like the uh, Black Cauldron style of illustration, even though I've never actually seen that film. I'm such a poser. Anyway, but um, what, what if instead of it was still animation, but it's like that Rankin and Bass... Uh, oh my gosh, like the, the old the Holiday... No, 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 no. No, a little bit newer Rankin and Bass. The Rankin and Bass... Um, I think it's Rankin and Bass. Now, now I'm going to quit saying it because it's starting to not sound like words. But um, that creepy cartoon version of the Lord of the Rings?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Maybe if it was in that style. That <laughs> style of animation. Because that gave me nightmares. And then this in that style of animation would give me nightmares.
0: Yeah, this this would make a good animated movie of some capacity.
1: Oh, totally, yeah, totally on board with that. But with our luck, it would be a early 2000s Tim Burton feature with Johnny Depp playing Esther Kettle. Uh, <laughs> don't want it. If that's your aesthetic, fine, but it's not mine, and I don't want it. I meant that to the listener, not necessarily you. No, I think once we get into the 2000s, I don't think I think Tim Burton lost it. He wasn't as good anymore.
0: The only 2000s Tim Burton that I remember particularly enjoying was Big Eyes. And that's because it was like the least Tim Burton-y.
1: I was bracing myself for you to say Charlie and the Choco Factory.
0: No, no. If you
1: had, I would have hung up this call.
0: (laughs) No, I don't remember much about that. It kind of left my mind as soon as I watched it. But Big Eyes I really enjoyed because I think it was more just like him wanting to like tell us a a story he was passionate about and not so much trying to like be Tim Burton, you know? And so I thought that that it, it worked fairly well because of that. And also because I think Amy Adams is the lead and she's phenomenal. So
1: I don't know why I thought it was someone else who was the lead, but uh, you've that. seen it, so you'd be right. I thought it was oh god, she's blonde and like was friends with um Nicole Kidman. I'm picturing her she was in the ring. I I'm picturing her fa Naomi Watts. I thought it was Naomi oh. Watts who was in it, but maybe I don't know. No, I never it, actually saw it.
0: I looked it up to be sure. It is it is Amy Adams. She's blonde okay. in it, though, but yeah.
1: Maybe that's why my brain did that.
0: It's Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. As Christoph Waltz, lead.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: As the crummy husband who's like, I did these ugly paintings. Yes. <laughs> Don't marry Christoph Waltz, anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into The Night Gardener. We begin with two young siblings heading to a rundown old house in rural England, and no, this isn't Long Lincoln. Uh, This takes place about a century earlier and stars 14-year-old Molly and her 10-year-old brother Kip. They are heading to the old Windsor estate, where they will work as housekeepers in the wake of their separation from their parents. You see, their family was one of the many displaced by the Great Famine of Ireland in the mid-1800s, but for one reason or another, their parents didn't make it over with them, so for now they're on their own. As they travel through the woods, they meet Hester Kettle, a wandering storyteller who warns them about what lies ahead. The woods themselves are strange, but there's something even stranger going on at the Windsor Estate ever since its master returned from decades away. That's ominous, but the kids don't have anywhere else to go. She gives them directions in exchange for a story about the estate later on, and Molly agrees. When they reach the Windsor Estate, they find it to be a large house on a small island covered in little hills. Near the house is an absolutely massive tree that has actually grown into the mansion in some parts. Kip is wary, and when Molly suggests that they would have ended up at an, orth- at an orphanage otherwise, Kip responds angrily that he's not an orphan. Of course not, Molly quickly agrees. Their parents are on their way. She gives him a button, which she says will grant him a wish. He doesn't believe it, of course, but the gesture settles Kip a bit, and they approach the house. They are agreed by Penelope, the youngest Windsor, at six years old. Molly is quick to answer Penny's numerous questions, but their budding friendship is interrupted by Penny's mother, the uptight and unpleasant Constance. She is displeased that her husband hired help, insisting that she can take care of things on her own, even though the house is in obvious disrepair, both inside and out, messy and dusty, and even sporting some large, muddy footprints. She is prepared to send them back out into the cold, but Molly says she has a story for her. She begins to tell a simple tale about Constance in a much more well-kept home, the kind she could have with a bit of help. And when she does, it almost seems like Molly is weaving magic. She isn't, not exactly, but she does have a storyteller's voice that can enthrall people so completely that she can win them over. She cuts the story off, telling Constance that she'll have to wait till tomorrow to hear more. And just like that, the kids have a job. Constance shows Molly around, telling them of their responsibilities. She specifically points out a locked green door that they should never enter, so you can guess exactly where they'll be going later. She also breaks the news that Kip will have to sleep in the stables because he has a leg disability and she doesn't want it spreading. Mm Mm-hmm. She, yeah. also, she also warns them against touching the tree. Molly notices a portrait of the Windsor family, except there's something not quite right. While Constance and Penny both have stringy black hair and a pale complexion in real life, the family in the portrait is full of life and sporting wild brown curls. Odd. Molly meets up with Kip, who has been outside, and says that he thought he saw a tall man in a dark outfit and top hat, watching him from a distance, but he disappeared. Also odd. That night, Molly falls asleep before the front door opens and heavy feet enter the house.
1: Yeah, we got, uh, just like with the chains, we got some period-appropriate ableism, making sure Kip sleeps outside so no one else gets his malady. And I've never understood that, because wouldn't the whole fan like, wouldn't Molly, like, have a, you know, mobility issues if that was the case? And it's not, but... Whatever. As soon as she sees the portrait of, like, the family looking, like, totally normal, I was like, red flag, get out.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: uh, but, hey, again, they, they had no other options.
0: I mean, I guess it's a better portrait than an old man with claw hands, because this book is just a weird Mirror World version of Long Lankin, or maybe Long Lankin's the Mirror World version of this one. <laughs>
1: Oh, but with like way more likable children. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, I really I, I I liked them both. And I enjoyed that I got to like them both. It it often ends up where I'm like, I like the older sibling, and then the younger one's kind of annoying, but like both of them have their like they're both interesting characters.
1: Yeah, I felt like first time in a while that this was a more realistic, uh, to me, sibling dynamic. Mhm. Well, my brother and I aren't as lovey as these two siblings are, but they kind of level with each other. Like they're, they're clearly each other's friends, like right. they're family and friends, which I like that dynamic and seeing that instead of like she's picking on him or using her like storytelling ability to torment him. Yeah. You know? It's just kind of nice when they don't do that, and it's like, oh, okay, so they're going to be, like, normal people. Good. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they have each other's backs, which is nice.
1: Uh, that's kind of what you need to do, and I think it takes going through something traumatic to, I don't know, sometimes bring make that happen. Yeah. Because Kit doesn't, he doesn't know, know what happens to his parents. I think he kind of, in the back of his mind, kind of had a feeling but didn't really want to entertain it and didn't push her too molly too hard to tell him because was just like no I'll, I'll listen to stories that's fine yeah it's like i don't want to know quite yet
0: yeah like i think deep down he he knows and he's kind of always known but like there's so much going on that it's like i don't want to i don't want to face that head on right now
1: yeah because he we do have like moments with him where he's all like She's giving me a wishing button. This is BS. But yeah. he's like, I'll go along with it. What, what's the harm? Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, I've kind of noticed all her stories kind of don't really add up. And But he just kind of, but even with that level of awareness, he still doesn't kind of shine that on his, like, what happened to the parents. Because, I mean, come on, like, they left and joined a pirate crew. Like, come <laughs> on, Kip. <laughs> like, But that's what she told him. And he's just so, like, groovy. He checks out. Our parents would totally do that. Why not? <laughs>
0: this is mainly just for you. One of the chapters ends when Constance comes into the room. And it's like, uh, uh can we keep her? And Molly's like, only if it pleases you. And the woman stood upright. Tell me, do I look pleased? And I just wrote, daddy? Do I look?
1: <laughs> do I look? Like... <laughs> yeah, so she gets mad because, like... Molly's sitting there with her little girl, all like, oh, yeah, the Archbishop was of Canterbury like got all horned up over Cleopatra. And she's like, don't tell my kid
0: that.
1: <laughs> I'm like, that's kind of blasphemous, isn't it? I don't know. But, yeah, pretty much liked the kids right away.
0: Yeah, I think what it cemented was... it for me was um, Molly telling the story and Constance is like, what happens next? And she's like, you have to wait till tomorrow to find out. I'm like, oh, you're clever. I like you.
1: I was like, oh, you're going to Scheherazade your way yeah. <laughs> into, into getting home. I right, <laughs> see what you're doing.
0: <laughs> Anything else before I proceed?
1: No, nope, go ahead. Proceed. Okay.
0: The next day, Kip meets Alistair, Penny's older brother and a grade A bully. He's picking on Penny and making her climb into a hole near the base of the tree. So Kip tackles him and they start fighting. Molly breaks them up and when Constance comes to investigate... Molly covers for Kip by saying Alistair attacked first. While this isn't true, Alistair is still a jerk and Constance seems to know this because she sends him to his room. She then has Molly and Kip fill the hole Penny was in. Kip tells Molly she shouldn't have lied, even if it was to protect them. She says she's just telling a story and Kip sagely asks, Do they count as stories when the other person thinks they're true? Uh, Bertrand Windsor, the father, returns from the city the next day. He is a small, meek sort of fellow. He has a stutter and a propensity for bad jokes and very little authority over his family. At dinner that evening, Constance becomes agitated when he continues to tell jokes instead of talking about his time at the bank or anything of importance at all, to the point where she leaves the table. The kids soon follow, leaving Bertrand alone. Molly later eavesdrops on Bertrand and Constance arguing. It seems that they're in some sort of financial trouble, and Bertrand has been trying to get them out of it by running with a new group of market spectators in town. He says things will work out if he's if he's given a little more time, and Constance gives in, handing him a key. One night, while telling Penny a bedtime story, which Penny loves more than anything, Molly notices a stack of books all titled Princess Penny and Her Various Adventures. Penny tells Molly that she's not supposed to see these books, but won't explain why. They begin talking about dreams, and Penny mentions that everyone in the house has awful dreams every night. And when they're not having bad dreams, they hear the sounds of someone wandering the house, leaving muddy footprints. Molly tells Penny goodnight and passes the green door, which is now open. Bertrand comes out, dragging a massive bag. He notices Molly and sends her to bed, and Molly agrees, but notices that, more than surprised to see Molly, he looked afraid. That night, Molly hears the footsteps, which are coupled with a wind carrying leaves through the house. She goes to investigate and sees a tall shadow moving inside Constance's room. She calls out to it, and the sounds stop. The figure disappears, as do the leaves, leaving behind nothing but a worn top hat. She realizes with horror that the man that watched Kip, the man that Penny fears in the night, is real. The next morning, Molly shows Kip the hat, and they both admit to having bad dreams, just like the Windsor family. He suggests leaving again, but Molly says there's nowhere else to go. Kip misses their parents, and Molly suggests they write a letter to them, which obviously won't work, but may help them get their feelings out. Molly helps Kip write the letter, which she then stashes in the bottom of her trunk, along with the top hat, so Kip won't know she'd never sent it. She is then startled by a knock at the door. It's Fig and Stubbs, two unscrupulous men that Bertrand had, has gotten mixed up with. They're demanding payment from Bertrand, and he brings them the bag he took out of the locked room. It's filled with money, but only half penny coins. Fig and Stubbs give Bertrand one more month to settle his whole debt, no more excuses or delays. They depart, and Molly can't help but wonder what lies behind the locked door. Later, while the kids play outside, Molly notices Bertrand asks Constance for her jewelry. She relents, but gets angry when he asks for her ring and throws it into the gravel. Molly then notices that evening that she's wearing the same ring, despite never retrieving it.
1: So, when the two, like, debt collector dudes show up, I was just like, I feel like we're in a Neil Gaiman story. Doesn't this just feel like this is a Neil Gaiman book and he didn't write it, though? Yeah, yeah. It totally does.
0: As, especially, but... <laughs> like, not just that and, like, some of the other aesthetic elements, but the, the through line of, like, the importance of storytelling.
1: Exactly. You know? Yes. This was, like, about as Neil Gaiman as you can get without him being anywhere near it. Right. But at the
0: same <laughs> time, it's not like, oh, this is just a Neil Gaiman ripoff. Like, you're not doing anything that's, like...
1: No, arrogant. uh-uh. It's just Neil Gaiman, but in a different font. Like, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. Like, oh this is all the stuff I like about his writing and it's all here. Like I was like like I didn't like Constance, but once the husband showed up, I was like, okay, I get it. Immediately I was just like, I a hundred percent I'm on her side. I know this guy is making terrible financial decisions and she and because of the time period, she can't just leave him. Right. She can't just like, you know what, screw it, you're bad at this, I'm taking over. You know, like none of that. So she's just kind of at his mercy and he's doing a really bad job and he knows he's doing a bad job, but he's just like, fake it till you make it. And like, yeah, but when are you going to make it? Right. But like Molly doesn't know all the context yet. So she's like all on his side, just like, wow, they're all so rude leaving the room while he's still talking. And like, you know, they don't seem all that happy to see him. And they're like, oh, why should they?
0: When he goes and gets the uh, the, the bag of money and uh, they complain about the denomination, I then went down a rabbit hole of trying oh, to no. understand the like the, the British currency of the time.
1: It, no, how'd that go? I uh, I gave up. Yeah, I was like,
0: "What do you yeah. mean that this is one two hundred and fortieth of a unit? How is that helpful?"
1: Yeah. I've never been able to understand it. I didn't even try, so I mean kudos to you for even <laughs> attempting. I was just like, I don't care. I'll take your word for it that it's not great.
0: <laughs> so Penny has a whole stack of books and they're they're exciting stories like Princess Penny Visits the Moon and Princess Penny and the Beast and then there's also Princess Penny eats a whole cake. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was just like, I like that one. Let's find out what yeah. happens there. I bet she eats the whole cake. Um.
0: <laughs> that one's narrated by Jim Gaffigan.
1: She didn't even have utensils. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Molly and Kip are talking about the the weird goings-on, and uh, Kip says, he he's kind of trying to like explain some of it in a way. He's like, maybe the, the wind just knocked that hat off the hat stand, and that's why it was on the ground. And Molly okay. says, uh, Molly says, Wind don't leave footprints. And I wrote, that's the new Bailey School Kids novel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wind doesn't leave footprints. <laughs> and all those dumb children slack-jawed staring at the floor. I like when Alistair is being a little bitch and beating up his, you know, he's being mean to his little sister, and like Kip steps in. Yeah. And Kev's just like, well, I'm about to get my ass handed to me. Cause that's <laughs> happened in every fight. And he's like, wait, I'm winning. Right. <laughs> this kid's clearly never been in a fight. How am I winning? <laughs> that kind of reminds me. I'll tell this story because I like it. But um, that kind of reminded me just because, you know, like that self-awareness of like, how am I winning this? Is uh, I got into a fight with my friend when we were both kids. Uh, her name was Brienne, and um, so we're fighting with each other and we're just done and like walking away from each other. And she goes Mara Para, and I turn to her, and I go Brienne Anne and we both kind of look at each other. And she has this look on her face, like, why did I open the door for this <laughs> when my name clearly rhymes with P? <laughs> and I kind of had. I'm looking back at her like, well, I mean, I had to take it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It was right there.
1: Yeah, like, I'd, I'd have been dumb to have left it. It was this very, like, self-aware moment for both of us. Yeah. That just, just sprang to mind right now. Just but.
0: like, yeah, that's kind of dumb. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> but, well, we're, we're we're seven and eight years old, so that's, that's what's happening right now.
0: You ready? Yeah. Kip is waiting for the postman to deliver a reply from his parents when he sees Hester Kettle. She won't come onto the property, and Kip asks her if she knows more about the place than she's letting on. She tells him that Bertrand grew up in the estate, but his family died suddenly, and he was forced to leave. Furthermore, his family isn't the first to settle the land. Many others have before the Windsors, drawn here by the same strange force, and always ending poorly. She tells Kip to maybe not scare Molly with this story, then continues on, away from the house. Molly receives a hand-me-down frock from Constance. And when she goes to put it away, she notices the top hat is gone. In its place is a pile of dry leaves. Kip comes inside and tells Molly that Galileo, the horse they arrived with, has gone missing. He tells Molly about Hester Kettle's visit, and they go out to find Galileo. Galileo. They go out to find the horse. Galileo! They find the horse a ways off, snared in a root of the old tree. They free him and notice an array of flowers that glow in the moonlight, arranged in a way that is surely deliberate. When they look back at the house, they notice that the door is open. The Nightman is back. They watch him exit the house and approach the tree with a set of gardening tools. He trims the moss around its base, waters its roots with a shimmering, unnatural liquid from his watering can, and then goes about digging near where the hole Penny was in used to be. He notices the kids and waves his hand, sending a gust of wind their way. They hide behind the well and all night hear the man digging, digging, digging. They wake up the next morning and notice that the hole is back, only covered in leaves. Kip is curious about the tree and decides to try planting some flowers near it. When he does, they die almost immediately. He takes a closer look at the tree and notices many of its branches are actually handles of axes and other tools that tried and failed to cut the tree down. He prods at the roots, and one of them wraps itself around his finger, squeezing and pricking him until it draws blood. Kip leaves the tree and wonders why anyone would build a house near it. Meanwhile, Molly goes inside to apologize for disappearing last night, and is surprised that Constance was actually worried about her. That evening, she tells Penny a story that is a thinly-veiled allegory for her and Kip eventually leaving the house, and it upsets Penny so much that she leaves her room. Molly eventually follows her, and finds her in the locked room, where she has another Princess Penny book. The room is mostly empty, except for part of the tree that is growing through the wall, sporting an enormous knothole. Molly sends Penny back to her room, then takes a moment to investigate the room herself. She hears the lapping of waves coming from the knothole, and out of the hole floats a letter. A letter from her mother.
1: Yeah, that that's what we in the business go, right, Ro? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: there was a thing, I, I think it was way earlier on, but there's a... There's a comment about the horse's name. She and Kip had been riding almost nonstop, led by a horse that barely tolerated them, due in part to the fact that Molly did not know the creature's name. She had told her brother it was Galileo, but the horse seemed to disagree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. It it's, remains a good friend to them, though, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. good of a horse as you can get in a story.
0: <laughs> I mean definitely like top five horses on the podcast how many horses have we even had i
1: don't know but i like that it's just like he's just like i was a little late feeding him so that's why the the horse wandered away so i just picture going fine i guess i'm just gonna starve unless i porridge for myself i'm like oh animals are so dramatic <laughs> like my cat today I heard, like, noise, and I look around the kitchen, and she's up on the counter, because no one feeds her. So her only option is to get into the bread bag full of stale bread that my mom feeds to the birds. It's all Becky has to eat. <laughs> I ca- So I carried her into the living room, and I go, look at this cat. She's clearly starving. <laughs> my mom's like, uh-huh. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it? Her dish was still full of crunchies. <laughs>
0: Um, I don't break the books down into exactly seven chunks like you do, but I, um, I do make a little, like, a uh, like a little roadmap of reading to make sure that I'm getting things done. Um, and I ended up, at some point in here, I ended up getting, like, four or five days ahead, just because I was, like, really interested in what was going on. Like, it was supposed to be, like, a, a six, six to eight day book or something for me, and then it became, like, a three-day book, so...
1: <laughs> you just had fun reading it.
0: Yeah, some somewhere around here, like the end of part one, I was like, "All right, let's, we're just, we're just going headfirst into all this." Let's, yeah. Did you have like a busy week or something? Because you were, you still had like several sections left to go yesterday.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't have a busy. I just haven't been able to read. Yeah. I just couldn't make myself do it. It wasn't anything wrong with the book yeah. at all. It's like any reading. I just haven't been able to do it lately. I just can't. It's been like a really bad block. So yesterday I was just like, you're going to have to finish this. (laughs) (laughs) You really do need to. Otherwise, it is going to be a really awkward episode. It's just like, tell me what happened in the book, Josh. (laughs) Well, you're like, I don't want a one-sided discussion.
0: Or I have a brief moment (laughs) where I'm like, I could invent an ending. It would not be good. (laughs) I guarantee you whatever I came up with wouldn't have been as, like, solid.
1: Oh, you just mess with me and just make something up? That's terrible. Don't do that. I wouldn't. Uh, You would, though. Um, oh, I, you know, (laughs) we were laughing about, like, Princess Penny eats a cake, which makes sense that the stories were coming from a tree. Because it's just like, oh god, another one. Um, okay, she eats a cake. <laughs> I wonder, wonder what else. This...
0: Yeah, what? What do trees know about the hero's the journey? Could
1: come up Probably not a whole lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they only know the refusal of the call because they're like, I'm a tree, I can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I'm good, okay. I'm just gonna like haunt this house. Yeah, she really likes self-insert fanfiction, little Penny. <laughs> Anything else? I don't think so. No, I was really half-assing my notes too, so I'm sorry. It's fine.
0: We, we've fear. we've both been there. <laughs>
1: yeah, that time where I had to carry the entire Wings of Fire episode on my back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Documented proof that I. I'm not always the kid in the group who has to do all the work. That sometimes I am, in fact, the lazy one.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you did all the hard stuff of editing the episode and, you know, taking care of that. So it's not like you did nothing. But I was pretty much by myself for that whole episode. (laughs) And then later and I was just all like, I felt really one side. You're like, you got really defensive about it. But I'm glad now in retrospect, you're like, yeah, I didn't do much.
0: Well, because, like, you know, sometimes your perspective of something in the moment is, like, you know...
1: Right, yeah. And
0: then, and then you're listening to, like, the empirical fact of it, because we have recorded it. And then you're like, oh man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you just really weren't into it. You did not like that Dragon series. I,
0: I, I really didn't, but I didn't... I. Wasn't mad enough about it to have anything to say. It just fell. It fell in that little in, in that little in between crack where it's just a nothing book for me. You know, it's it's the one yeah. spot we don't want to be when we're discussing things.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Okay. Are you ready to? We're into part two yeah. now. Okay. Molly shows Kip the letter, which says that their parents are alive and well on a big adventure through the seas. The letter says they'll write again soon, so stay where they are. It's hard to believe, but the letter is in their mother's handwriting, and it's, and it's exactly what Molly was hoping for, so they accept it. Kip tells Molly about the strangeness he encountered at the tree, which is concerning, but they agree to stay for a little while longer. More letters arrive over the next couple weeks. Molly comes to realize that the room seems to give the person who uses it what they want most. Stories for Penny, Jewels for Constance, Money for Bertrand, and Candy for Alistair. She eventually asks Alistair why he gets sweets, and she learns that going to the candy shop with Bertrand is kind of emblematic of the good life they had before their troubles began, and before they came to the Windsor estate. Bertrand is out of town again, and he hires a doctor to come check up on the family while he's away. This doctor is Ezekiel Crouch, and he's a big science nerd with high aspirations. When he meets Kip, Kip asks about curing his disability, and Crouch tells him that there's nothing that could be done with current medicine, much to Kip's disappointment. Bertrand eventually returns, looking younger and healthier than before. He is disappointed to see the ring on Constance's hand again, meaning that she used the room. Later, while cleaning, Molly finds a box filled with identical rings to the one Constance wears. Constance tells Molly that it's the ring Bertrand gave her when they were first dating, and although it isn't valuable, it means the most to her. But each band is smaller than the last, and yet they'll slip off her finger as she wastes away in this evil place. Later, Molly looks into the mirror and for the first time notices that she is changing too. Her once red hair is now almost all black, and her skin is sickly pale. She decides to stay in the stable with Kip, and asks him why he didn't mention that she was changing. He tells her she wouldn't have believed him, because if she went weeks without noticing it herself, what chance did he have of convincing her? Their time at the estate grows bleaker. Molly stops telling stories almost entirely, and the letters from their parents cheer them up less and less. The night gardener visits again, and Molly sneaks out to watch him. This time, she sees him press a rag to Bertrand's sleeping head while he tosses and turns, in the grips of a nightmare. The night gardener wrings the rag out into his watering can. He notices Molly watching him and blows a handful of leaf dust at her, and she falls unconscious. Kip finds her as the night gardener approaches with his rag. Kip hits him with a nearby lamp and the Night Gardener roars in pain as the fire engulfs him. Kip runs away, eventually finding himself in the Garden of Glowing Flowers. The Night Gardener follows, but seems unable to cross into the garden. He leaves a small item at the edge of the garden and disappears. Kip takes it, realizing it's a gift. The next day, Molly and Kip go to the market. Kip shows Molly his gift, a key. Molly, knowing what it's for, takes it and throws it into the bushes. They are then greeted by Hester Kettle. She helps them barter with the merchants by suggesting that if they don't give the kids a good price, she'll spread nasty rumors about them. Molly realizes the versatility of storytelling, the gift that she has stopped using. Hester Kettle asks Molly for the story she was promised, and in response, Molly asks the woman if she knows a story about a man and a tree. Turns out she does. As payment, Kip gives the woman his wishing button. She begins the story. There was once a gardener who kept a beautiful array of flowers that only blossomed under the light of the moon. Eventually, the garden expanded, and a tree grew. It was alive in a way that the other plants were not, and it gave you whatever you wished for, in return for a drop of your soul. The night gardener wished for eternal life so he could continue gardening forever, and the tree granted this wish in exchange for assisting in its growth. The gardener obeyed, tending to the tree at the expense of everything else, and once the tree was grown, it swallowed the man whole. The kids question the veracity of the tale, and Hester Kettle asks them what the difference between a story and a lie is. A lie, Molly says, hurts people. A story helps them, but helps them do what, the woman asks, before continuing on down the road.
1: I like the moment between uh, Molly and Alistair when she's, like, cleaning his room, and she's like, oh god, small. I just remember that teenage boy smell of, like, butt and feet. Like, it's so bad. Like, for <laughs> the bedroom. And so she's like, oh, God, it's so bad in here. And um, he comes in with his sweets. And I could do without the fat shaming of Alistair. I'm not into that. But, like, she is thinking, like, he's just guzzling these sweets constantly. And he's all like, don't judge me because it it brings me good memories of my dad, (laughs) you bitch. You know, this kind of attitude. And then um, he gets kind of mean, like, oh, what, you think you're so superior with your little letters? I'm gonna tell my mom that you've been using our tree, and she's like, okay. Or I can dip your candy in your poops, and he's like, oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this section was like really interesting to me because seeing Molly start to turn, I think, was really like heavy, and like especially the fact mm-hmm. that Kip's like I noticed weeks ago, but you know, what was I gonna be able to do? You weren't noticing it yourself, and I'm like, ooh, that's right. That's harsh.
1: Yeah, that was a very, like, adult moment for him. Yeah. And plus, like, I think he kind of senses that the letters are bullshit because he he's he sat out waiting for that mailman like every day. And then, like, it showed up and he didn't see the delivery happen. And now all these other like they'd heard nothing for so long. And now we're like on the regular getting these letters. Right. So he's probably feeling like, I don't know, this feels weird. It is my mom's handwriting, but this still feels really weird. So he, yeah, Kip's kind of, like, kind of trying to put everything together, and it's, it's upsetting him.
0: Yeah. I think it's really interesting that, like, the thing Molly wants most in the world, like, yes, it's for her in the sense that, like, she also misses her parents, but it's also kind of for Kip in the sense that she really wants to like not hurt him and yeah more so than her own emotions she's just so like she's had this responsibility you know thrust on her of like you have to take care of your brother now and that's just that's really hard
1: that's probably why the letters are for her too so then she can kind of feel like there's like this reassurance of like they'll be here i'm not on my own Right, like this is evidence right here, my like my parents aren't here right now, but they will be this isn't gonna be my sole responsibility anymore, yeah, so I can see why she kind of just sort of slides into that fantasy where she knows perfectly well that that's not was that's not what's going on. They start to seems like yeah, they start to mean more to her than they do to Kip
0: did you enjoy i I had a feeling that you enjoyed the uh master kettle at the market sequence.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I did. She's so she's just so good.
0: I like the, uh, I mean, storytellers in stories are always really interesting because you're you know kind of the 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 meta commentary, not like ooh meta, but you know the storytellers talking about storytellers. It's the thing they're most passionate about. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, but it also is, like yeah. I do like her, her, the that kind of like all of the little things that she has being like a you know these exchanges that she's made with people and the encounters that she's had over the years and stuff it reminds me of um i'm pretty sure i talked about it uh when we were talking about like our top 10 ya reads uh the black book of secrets because part of the thing for that is a guy sets up a pawn shop and he like he he will pay people for their secrets but he also had like the other part of his pawn shop is a regular pawn shop and it's just filled with the weirdest things that no one would ever actually want to buy like there's like a wooden leg that would only fit you know one person's leg um and it's got like a weird hollowed out part and then there's like a kettle that has a hole in it and it's just like there's a weird amalgamation of just absolute nonsense but like there, there's a there's a meaning to it underneath of like the transactions between like you know a, like a, a story keeper and the people telling the stories and I don't know I don't know I like the I like the kind of like just the the the, the patchwork imagery of it is nice.
1: I also like a good mark of a storyteller as well is like having like a really good understanding of people. Sometimes you read stuff where it's just, you know, you look at the author and you're like, have you met a person? This isn't how anyone would act. And it's kind of like how you and I get frustrated with some of the books where, like, the character is a certain way. And then the author changes that to suit their plot. When it really maybe for the to feel more sincere and real, you got to follow what the character would do. And it feels like Hester Kettle, like, understands that to a T. Cause, like, she, she has, like, this, these kids' stories. Like, she, she knows what, ha- you know? She has, like, a good feeling of what happened. It's, it's she's, um, kind of like how you and I are now with all those books we've read, we're, like, really trope savvy. Like, we know what's up. And she just kind of looks at a situation and knows exactly what's up. Yeah. Like she wasn't like, "What you guys are from a rich household? Why aren't you able to buy in this marketplace?" She's like, "I know what's going on. Okay, I, I got this." <laughs> <laughs> and helps them out.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I got, yeah, yeah, I got you. I, I, I think
1: got, it's like yeah. an underappreciated um, <laughs> skill to uh, understand people and uh, why emotions happen and what's likely to. She's she's good at connecting the dots. Yeah,
0: yeah, and kind of like the you know the idea of like there's social and emotional intelligence just as much as there is like purely factual intelligence and she's she's very savvy of the how people work and yeah mm-hmm. like you said connecting the yeah. dots
1: yeah that's kind of what i liked that's what i liked about her but um that's why molly sees her kind of as sinister cuz she doesn't want to be no she's hiding so much right now so she's just like not wanting to tell Hester anything, even though she owes this woman a story. She, you know, she said she'd offer it. And it it was Kip who was just like, okay, this is what's happening. (laughs) This is what's happening at the house. And he's kind of looking at her like, what are you doing right now? Why aren't you telling? Mm -hmm. And she's just like, if I tell one thing, everything will unravel.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I
1: cannot let anything slip. Like if Kip could like, if he'd stayed at home, then maybe she could have like, just barfed it all out to her. Just like, okay, so, here's these letters, but my parents are dead, and you know, just, there's just so much to unpack, and she's just like, I can't unpack it right now.
0: Gosh, yeah, you saying that made me realize that what, one of the through lines of a, a number of books we've read is like, older sister hanging on by a thread.
1: <laughs> are we picturing when Rosalind can, like, lost Batty and then lost her damn mind. Yeah. Screaming like, promised our dead mother i look after her. Yeah. And everyone's like, we're going to look, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Older sister, mom junior is just on the verge of a breakdown. <laughs> Older sister's doing their best, damn it. <laughs> That's what every book comes down to. I don't know, Did I don't think uh, Kendra Sorensen ever I can't remember if she ever came close to losing her damn mind. No,
0: I think I think that um, I think there were enough adults in their life to also be like, yeah, no, like Seth's kind of a moron sometimes. You're okay, you're good.
1: <laughs> Seth's kind of a moron. Poor Seth. I l- I really liked him towards the end. So, yeah, no, he um,
0: he he uh, he, yeah. he learned how to rein it in a bit.
1: <laughs> He's the um. Fablehaven, uh, uh steve harrington where he's like yes you got the character development so you earned the audience's love got it Though <laughs> so i will say that i was with steve harrington season one like i liked him until i didn't but then what brought me back was when he showed up to that movie marquee where he'd written that nasty shit about nancy and was like hey i, I want to help clean that up and he wasn't doing it for fanfare. Or like, look what I'm doing. I'm so good. He's just like, this is the right thing to do. And I feel crummy, so yeah, I'm gonna fix it. And I was just like, that's a good man. Stage <laughs> <laughs> boy, but that's a good man. But then everyone else going like, Steve's my new favorite character now. In like season two, I was like, yeah, he's your favorite character now. When it's easy, I've always been here. <laughs> All right, we should probably get back to our podcast.
0: Yeah. All right. The kids return to the house, and once they're settled back in, Kip sneaks up to the locked door. He found the key Molly tossed away, and now it's time to see what the tree can offer. Meanwhile, Molly asks Constance why the family stays. She says it's because even though the tree makes them sick, without it they would have nothing. Molly thinks about the letters, realizes they always end with telling her to stay at the house, and decides that maybe they're not so good after all. She tries to burn them, but has second thoughts. Just then, she hears a crash and finds Constance has collapsed and is unconscious. Crouch comes to check on Constance, who has been unresponsive for two days. He believes he's on the brink of a new medical discovery with this one. Molly notices Bertrand returning to the locked room, and she finds him begging the tree for a cure instead of money. More than that, he wants out. Molly goes to him, and he tells her his sad story of bad investments and massive debt, but his story starts even before that, with his parents, who died here too. Molly tells him a parable that helps him understand that they need to leave, but he's unable to break the cycle and takes money from the tree to pay Crouch. Molly notices another letter has arrived and is waiting for her. That evening, Molly tries to convince Crouch that there's something supernatural going on. He doesn't believe her, but the idea of discovering something unknown and getting credit for that is enough to get him on board to try and catch the night gardener. But he needs time to prepare. Kip is told to clear the area around the base of the tree, and when he does, he uncovers not one hole, but six, each a different size. Six holes for six members of the household. Six graves. Molly looks around and realizes that the entire island, dotted with mounds, is a graveyard. Eventually, Crouch's trap is ready. It's a rope snare that uses one of the tree's branches as an axle, and Galileo's cart as a counterweight. He then shows how he plans to capture the night gardener. On film. He has a camera and only intends to take its picture, not take it away entirely, like Molly hoped. She's disappointed, but nevertheless, they wait for the Night Gardener to arrive. And soon enough, someone does arrive. Hester Kettle, who gets caught in the snare. As they go to let her down, they notice the Night Gardener watching them. Chaos ensues as the Night Gardener attacks with a gust of wind, and Crouch tries to flee on Galileo's wagon. The branch snaps, dropping Hester Kettle to the ground and crushing her back. The gardener stumbles as if hurt, then launches a stable door off its hinges and onto the fleeing doctor, killing him instantly. Molly uses the camera's phosphorus flash to burn the night gardener and buy them time. Molly and Kip load Hester Kettle into the cart, and they flee. The gardener follows them to the bridge, but cannot cross. For the moment, they are safe. Look, another tall monster that cannot cross water. Um
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I said it. Uh, I always make the same joke where I'm like, oh, he follows the uh, headless horseman rules or he can't cross a certain bridge. Yeah. Oh, I liked when, um, probably like the only thing I liked about Dr. Crouch because he's kind of this eugenicist sort of asshole. <laughs> but, um, when like Constance is super sick and like Molly's like, aren't you gonna like bleed her? And he's yeah. like, she doesn't have any fluids to spare. We're not going to do that. And I was just like, yeah, good for him for not doing that with leeches and crap. Like, I don't know why that was ever a good idea.
0: That's so true. But I also love the fact that he follows that up with being like, come on, we have modern medicine now. And then he's like, look, opium. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) I start my day with laudanum. And I'm like, oh, criminy. Okay. Never mind.
0: When they first came to the house and there were all those mounds, I was like, I bet those are graves. And then 200 pages later, I just wrote in all caps, GRAVES, I TOLD YOU! Uh, listeners, if you find yourself making the same arguments to stay with a partner as the the Windsor family is making about the tree, you're in an abusive relationship and you need to seek help. Because when I was rereading the synopsis there of like, yeah, it's bad to stay, but if I leave, I'll have nothing. I'm like, oh, no.
1: Girl, he's no good for you. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to go back to school. You need to make up with your mom. Oh, God. I I w- I wrote. I think I wrote my note somewhere. This is like the dark giving tree. Like that poor tree <laughs> that gave everything, everything to that asshole in that book. But like this one's like, yeah, you can have stuff, but I'm going to take your soul. And you're like, yeah, cool. I just really want candy.
0: It's if Shel Silverstein wrote the giving tree. But Shel Silversteed's personality was like his picture on the back of the book.
1: Yeah, completely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I
0: was not expecting the story to get as violent as it got all of a sudden.
1: For real, yeah. When Crouch just backhands Molly and I'm like, the fuck? Yeah! I can and, then like, and then she's like staring at him too, and it's like he's speaking to us and he's all like, don't judge me. It's every man for himself. Survival of the first.
0: And then he and I gets framed like, by a barn door.
1: <laughs> I was picturing that. I thought it sounded. I thought it sounded funny. Just picture like it's in the distance. You see him like running, and then the barn door just plump. How I great would to... that be in the stop motion?
0: Okay, in my head, I had it go twice. One time, it was like a cartoon anvil falling on him. The other time, it was like a giant version of Cap's shield. Just, like, bashing him in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and then Hester Kettle falling from the tree, that was, like, that was really...
1: Oh, yeah, I hated that.
0: Yeah, that was awful.
1: I was like, don't kill my favorite character.
0: Yeah, and then Crouch's whole thing about, like, just wanting to have his name in, like, any book for discovering something. Right, yeah. That's, like, that that sort of character in, like, 1800s, like, story. I've seen it come up a couple of times, and it's it's always an interesting like i know there's um uh, in the um in the video game red dead redemption there's a guy who i think is like going around trying to take pictures of like rare wildlife and stuff which is very funny because when he's not around you end up encountering a sasquatch
1: <laughs> <laughs> like bro you're not going to believe this <laughs> he's like i'm into plants not cryptozoology <laughs> Oh, also, didn't he, like, make a comment about skull shapes? I was like, of course you're a phrenologist as well. Yeah. God, you suck. (laughs) Just like, what are the most racist things that we have going on in science right now? And I'll buy it. (laughs) Okay. Cool. We have
0: modern medicine, and modern medicine is racist AF. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, Whatever. The barn door got him. He's done.
0: Don't let the barn door crush you you on the way out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyone who hasn't read this book is like, that was oddly specific. <laughs> then you turn around, oh, shit, and this. <laughs> it's like, oh, you made the gardener mad. <sighs> I'm sorry, it's so stupid. <clears throat>
0: you ready for part three? Yeah which if anyone's curious the uh, the the three parts are titled um they're titled Arrivals, Pursuits and Departures and I uh, I don't know I like I I always like when things are kind of symmetrical like that um which there's some there's some fun symmetry towards the end of the book and I uh, I'm very excited to go over that just the, the 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 writing nerd in me all right Molly and Kip ride into the forest until Hester Kettle tells them to stop she's dying she knows that and she wants to go out on her own terms. She reveals that she came to the house to make her own wish, to be remembered for her stories. She gives Molly an oilskin bundle and tells her not to open it yet. It's her parting gift to them. She gets to her feet and walks into the woods, where she will tell her last story. The story of her life, of her final moments. A story meant for nobody's ears but hers. After she's gone, things are quiet for a long time. Kip eventually reveals to Molly that he went to the tree and asked for a cure for his disability, and received an ointment, but never used it. He knew if he did, he'd be a slave to the tree, unable to leave for fear of running out of medicine. Molly tells him the truth of what happened to their parents, that Kip was sick with fever and unable to remember them reaching the docks, where their father secured them the last space on the last boat out. Molly couldn't bear to tell Kip the truth, so she told him a story, and the letters from the tree helped with that. Stories, Molly realizes, help people face the world even when it frightens them. Lies only help them hide. Kip throws the ointment in the fire, and Molly tells him he's the bravest person she'd ever met. And they need that bravery, because they have a family to save. They return to the manor and realize that the night gardener can only go as far as the tree's roots, which is why he couldn't cross the bridge. Alistair approaches them and is mad at them for leaving. He has Kip's crutch called Courage, which Kip dropped earlier. And when Kip tells Alistair that the problem is the tree, Alistair throws Courage into the river. Kip could be angry, but instead he tells Alistair he feels sorry for him. Alistair has heard this before. He's selfish and cruel, and his mother is sick and dying and will go to her grave, believing that her son never did anything good for anyone. Molly and Kip continue up to the house, leaving Alistair to ponder those words. Molly finds Bertrand and formally quits as housekeeper, then snatches the key to the locked room. She makes him come outside and see the graves before she'll give it back. And when he sees the graves, he realizes what sort of awful place this really is. He tells Molly that his family died when his father tried to attack the tree, and that they're buried somewhere as well. Now it's time for him to make a similar choice. Stay captive to the monster, or finally leave. Molly helps the family pack, telling Penny she can't bring the stories the tree gave her, but promising better stories in the world outside. Constance is awake but weak, and protests about leaving her ring, but Bertrand convinces her it will be okay. They are all packed up by sundown, ready to leave, when Fig and Stubbs return for what they're owed. Did you cry for Hester Kettle?
1: Um, no, I didn't. But maybe that's because I kind of reached a point with Hester Kettle that I started reading out loud only her dialogue because I picked out a voice for her. Yeah. So, and she was, like, so, like, calm about going to her end. And I was, like, her as I read it that it didn't make me cry. It was just more like you know this probably is how it's going to how it should end and that's what we're going to do you know like yeah. she went with dignity so yeah i do feel really sad now though but cuz i just thought she was such a great character i yeah. really liked her
0: And i i thought that
1: god she'd be she'd be such a good cartoon character too mhm like particularly her is when she showed up i was like this has okay i was picturing this live action but this just became a cartoon
0: <laughs> yeah, the animators would have such a good time like putting things on her like backpack or whatever.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought that her death was handled really well. I thought that that was really It was really like poetic without being like super sappy. It was just kind of like
1: Totally. Yeah, it didn't get all purple. Yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, I, I pretty much predicted what Kip got from the tree.
0: Yeah. I I I, I liked like, that it wasn't spelled out until that moment. Um,
1: yeah, because we knew he got something, and then like he's walking around like rubbing his hip and shit, and I was just like, oh, he, he traded for some for the for some like salve to put on there to try and mm-hmm. make his poor little leg, you know, not be withered anymore, and he can walk without a struggle. Yeah, and he's kind of ashamed of it, like when he when he says like, okay, you're big wish was to make sure i was okay with those letters and my you know my greatest wish was for myself what does that say about me and i'm like oh Kip, come on hon like
0: yeah Your
1: your private (laughs) desire deep in your heart is allowed to be selfish it doesn't it's okay yeah and molly handles it really well yeah yeah she's
0: just like it makes you human like we all have those desires and that's okay like
1: right it doesn't make you a bad person i mean Let's let's look at this here. I mean, I think that doofus just getting candy is just <laughs> right. eating with, like, even though, like, my dad took me for candy once. And you know, like, okay, so you need candy all the time now? Like, I'm not as sympathetic to that, but, like, what, the, the kid who, like, every day is kind of really painful and a struggle to move, and he wants it to not be that way anymore? That's not selfish. Yeah. Yeah, Molly handled it perfectly. And it made me wonder what the tree would have for me, and I don't know.
0: It 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 just doles out like high dose anti anxiety medicine, and you're like, "Well, I knew that."
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know. I, I was like, "Am I like I can't I can't think of anything that tree could give me that I'd have to hang around for a long time to like keep getting it?" Right. I mean, I do like money, but like. I think I have enough on my own that I don't need to, like, be beholden to a creepy soul-sucking tree, you know?
0: Well, we're about to do the last section. Anything else before we wrap it up? No. Okay. Fig and Stubbs tie up the whole household and prepare to begin torturing Constance until Bertrand gives them their money. Thinking quickly, Molly acts like she hates the Windsors for being rich and suggests that Fig and Stubbs go to the locked room and get what they deserve. They make Molly come with them and go inside, where promissory notes rain out of the knothole. When they exit the room to find containers for the money, Kip notices one of the men's knife is missing. Molly's a bit of a pickpocket, it seems. Fig and Stubbs get ever more greedy, reaching into the knothole to find more money and eventually deciding to cut the tree open. Fig hacks at it with an axe, but is stopped by the night gardener, who climbs out of the knothole. Molly runs out of the room and locks the men in there with the night gardener, then frees the rest of the group. Kip has an idea to slow down the gardener further, and Alistair volunteers to help. He breaks off a branch to make a new crutch for Kip, injuring the night gardener in the process, and the two boys rush off. The night gardener follows, and the boys take turns throwing rocks at him, and ducking behind different mounds, slowly working their way towards the moon garden. Meanwhile, after the family is out of the house, Bertrand and Molly go about dousing the tree in lamp oil to burn it down. They set the tree on fire, which causes the gardener who has caught up with the boys to catch fire as well. Kip realizes they've been back to the edge of the river, and in a last-ditch and in a last ditch effort, he tackles the gardener, sending them both into the water. The house burns wildly, but the tree refuses to go down. Molly races inside and throws a match into the knot hole, but a gust of wind from inside the tree blows it out. Realizing that the tree will not allow anything to go inside it that didn't come from it, she sets the letters from her parents alight and throws them into the knot hole. She hears a crackling as the fire catches in the tree. The gardener approaches her, but falls apart as the tree dies, collapsing into a pile of ash. Molly escapes the burning house and finds the Windsors safe and sound, and Kip, drenched and dripping, clutched in Alistair's arms. She tries to wake him, but can't, and whispers a story about him in his ear. He awakes, coughs up some water, and asks what happens next. What happens next is that the nearby village offers the Windsors help getting back on their feet until they can use their insurance money to build a home for themselves. They offer Molly and Kip a place with them, but Molly realizes this isn't their forever home. They may come visit someday, but they still have their own life to lead. Bertram presents Constance with a simple bouquet of flowers, and she loves it more than any amount of jewelry. Alistair presents Kip with another branch made of not-cursed tree to act as a replacement crutch. Seems he learned something from all this after all. Molly and Kip head down the road and eventually come to a crossroads. Molly decides to open the bundle from Hester Kettle. Inside is nothing, because the oilskin itself is the gift. It's a map, and marked on the map is a red dot. A home. Hester Kettle had no need for one, as she wasn't the type to settle down. But these two kids? They could use a place to call their own. The end. Mm. The image of the night gardener climbing out of the knot hole is very
1: good. Mm-hmm. Stuff and nightmares. I was just picturing that, like, oh, god, that sounds horrible. <laughs> oh, god. And when she she doesn't just lock them in there, she breaks the key in the lock, so yes. there's no hope of getting that thing open. Yes,
0: and she, when she goes yeah. back in later, she kind of glances and sees something that may have once been one of the debt collectors, yeah. and is like, uh...
1: Yeah, I like that we didn't linger on that for too long. I was just like, no, not in a kid's book, not after a frickin' long lankin'. I was just like, let's, it's for children. (laughs) Let's not go too crazy. And he, and he doesn't. I think this was like, really good balance of like, child horror, where like, it's spooky enough, like, if you have a particularly sensitive kid, they might lose a little bit of sleep, or they, you know, they might need to like, can I sleep with you tonight? I'm scared. You know, like, you might still get that, but it's not gonna be traumatic, traumatic, I don't think.
0: Yeah, for sure. It does, it it does, it knows where the line is, pretty well. Yes. Um, like,
1: it's a step up from goosebumps in, like, quality of scare and, like, in stuff, but um, still in the neighborhood of goosebumps where it's like, this won't ruin your life, most likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've have had scary things ruin my life. We had a whole—if anybody wants to watch it—we had top ten childhood spooks like for Halloween a few years ago, and that was the stuff that ruined our lives.
0: Yes, but you can't—you can't watch it because this is not a visual medium.
1: They can watch it.
0: They can—they co- can they watch can stare the little. They can watch the little timer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they can stare at the little timer and go like, "Wow, what a great podcast."
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. uh That kip's default fighting style is tackle people
1: i mean go with your strengths yeah he'd for sure have good you have good upper arm strength from yeah you know pulling himself along so yeah good for him
0: okay so the the uh this the symmetry oh, that he, i wanted he, to talk about
1: okay sure
0: unless you had something
1: i was making fun of your stuttering because i'm a bitch but go ahead <laughs>
0: so i stole one of them for the the synopsis here which is that chapter 54 ends with kip waking up and asking what happened next and chapter 55 is titled what happened next which i liked that but the one that i like even more is that the very first chapter is called storyteller at the crossroads because that's where they meet hester kettle and the very last chapter is called storyteller at the crossroads because that's who molly is now and i'm like ah so good so good Coming full circle in a way that like isn't super forced is one of my favorite things. That's all.
1: I thought the symmetry was gonna you were gonna bring up was like they started this story uh, in a cart and then they ended it in a cart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like that, that's like the lazy answer on like the worksheet <laughs> <Yeah>. at school. <laughs> Where the teacher's like, Well you're not wrong, that's not really what I was looking for. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's, this, yeah, this is a very well constructed story. Yes. Um, I was admiring that the whole time where I was just like, there's no slow, boring bits, but it doesn't feel rushed. We're just, we're going the exact right pace. Yeah. The right amount of things are revealed at the right time. Yeah.
0: One of the biggest problems I know that I end up commenting on is is always the pacing. Yeah. And this one, no problems with the pacing. Everything was given pretty much exactly the right amount of time.
1: I wouldn't mind reading more by this author.
0: Yeah, he's got a few others.
1: Yeah, yeah I recognized his name from when I worked at the library and shelved yeah. quite a bit. So, Um. yeah, I'm really glad I picked this.
0: Yeah, that was a good call. The very last page of my paperback copy has a list of suggested activities, and the third one made me laugh because it's... Reread the paragraphs describing the physical appearance of the Nightman. Use your imagination to draw the face of the Nightman. Let him haunt your dreams as you fall asleep tonight.
1: Oh. <laughs> I don't have that in mind. I have a hard back.
0: Oh, okay. And then we had been talking about the idea of, a, like, an animated film of this, and I actually looked up, I was like, that would be so cool if, like, you know, like I said, Leica studios did something like this i looked it up they're making a film called the night gardener but it has nothing to do with this what it's their it's their first foray into live action filmmaking and it's completely unrelated and just happens to also be called the night gardener
1: <laughs> weird yeah <laughs> well then i guess when this gets made by our animation studio it'll have to change the name to like the Nightman. Or something yeah <laughs> our animation studio you know
0: hold on let me work on my flip book
1: oh that would be real that it should be told in like flip book style when hester is telling the story of the night gardener
0: oh yeah but yeah.
1: but i feel like didn't they do that in harry potter when he was telling the story of the deathly hallows
0: it wasn't quite flip book but it was it was kind of like a it was
1: reminiscent of that
0: like an animated storybook sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. Um they did a similar thing with uh the opening of Hellboy 2, I think when they're telling the story of the the Golden Army. But those are more like they use more like mannequin marionette sort of puppetry style i
1: kind of love i kind of love when they do that though in movies that's like my favorite thing when they start doing do the storytelling and then it becomes a different medium yeah or a completely different animation style than the animation you've already been watching yeah i I don't know i just i I go like oh boy like every time (laughs) it's one of my favorite things yeah it's pretty good
0: (laughs) uh speaking of pretty good uh how would you rate this
1: how would you rate it i always go first that's true
0: I gave it like a four and a half, which by my personal rating, that sounds fair. That rounds it to a five for me. But like, I don't know if you feel like it should be in five territory. Um, but I thought it was just like really strong. So
1: it's really it is really strong. Yeah. Um, I've met four point five as well. But uh good reads, it's either four or five. But I think four is way too low. Yeah. For how good this is. So we might have an Amari situation where we have to (laughs) make it five for Goodreads. (laughs) But, no, that's pretty good that we got, like, two really high-ranking ones pretty fairly recently.
0: Yeah, like I said, if you could just go back in time and buy more books at that point, like, you were obviously, like, hitting some some good vibes or something.
1: (laughs) I was looking at covers, like, that's a cool cover, and then checking the Goodreads score... And being like, oh, that's pretty high. All right, I'll take a chance on this. And if anything was like a 3.5, I'm like, no. (laughs) Because 3.5 for Goodreads, it may as well just be dog poop. Yeah. Because everybody overrates things on good. Sorry, folks, but you do. Yeah. Like, uh, if a book is like a 3, it shouldn't be like, oh, that's a really bad book. Right, yeah. Anyway, that was The Night Gardener.
0: That was The Night Gardener.
1: Good times. Good times. I have no idea what's next, so you'll have to tell them.
0: So, next month, we are going to be reading Hookie by... Oh, God. Miriam Bonister-Tour? I'm gonna have to look that one up. Uh, It originated, I believe, as a webcomic and then got published as a young reader's graphic novel. And it's about... Oh, which, uh, oh yeah, two two twelve-year-olds and magic mishap, and
1: I don't know. It just looks real cute. So I haven't gotten it yet, so I better get on that.
0: Ah, oh, there's a little there's a little lizard who sticks his tongue out. That's good. All right.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: it looks cute. I believe this one was recommended by uh, by a listener, a
1: reader. a reader, a reader, a read. It was a reader.
0: A, a reader a of this book.
1: Reader. Reader of that book, yeah, I, I said reader was with, with such confidence that I could just hear your confusion
0: uh yeah, this this was uh this was suggested by uh listener Lily, uh partially because the sequel is releasing, actually if you're listening to this, it should already be out. it should have released in September in early September, um, but she is also the person who suggested Wolf Hollow to us. <laughs>
1: And she was like, I'm sorry, here's something happier.
0: It's, it's yeah, it says, since that book was not exactly a happy book, I wanted to recommend one of my favorite books that is more happy than Wolf Hollow. And that is fair. <laughs> also, I used she because I assumed because of Lily, but I apologize, I shouldn't I shouldn't assume pronouns. Um but thank you, listener, for the uh uh for the recommendation. That is what we're reading next. So
1: And if you have suggestions for what we should read next, where can they find us, Joshua? Joshua. Joshua, I know your name. I've only known you for years.
0: Uh, you can you can contact us. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at hfkpodcast, and you can email us at hfkpodcast at gmail.com. It doesn't look like we're on Twitter and Instagram very much because I'm really bad about posting things, but I, I do have like the notifications on, so I will notice if anybody reaches out to us that way. I am just not... I am not a social media person in terms of, like, I don't really care about telling people about my life, and I forget about the fact that I'm trying to advertise something. Uh, (laughs) So I'm really bad about that. But please feel free to reach out to us. I think we've... uh, Almost every time a listener has suggested that we read something, we have read it. Um, So there's a good chance that uh, your suggestion will end up on the podcast.
1: Yeah. um, And I think we do we should be taking some suggestions. Cause like Josh and I have noticed that the last several books we've read have all been of the spoopy variety. And as much as child horror is like really fun, we should be reading other things as well.
0: (laughs) We have to remember that like, there are other things out there.
1: (laughs) Totally. And that are just as valid that are like fun. It's, it's, yeah as much as we do like the horror we kind of do need to take a break so we don't have another long Lankin and night gardener situation yeah <laughs> almost the same book i feel like they were like in a writing group and they both had the same prompt and then just delivered very different stories but still were like mirror images of each other right but anyway all right the 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 podcast was was made and produced by, by you recorded and produced by you with, with music by Ben Ash.
0: Hello fellow kids. Check him
1: out at <laughs> benash.com. Yeah. You've been, oh, uh, no, you've tried. been really,
0: uh, like t- taking the lead on some of the parts that I usually default to.
1: You feel bad. Cause I don't think I contributed much this time around. So It's like, I can try and like, try.
0: Uh, Yes, benash.com. Still don't know if that's an active website or not. I might be sending people to a dead or malicious site, in which case, please blame Ben Ash. (laughs) Alright, we'll be back in November with Hookie.
1: Bye! Bye!